questions are on the screen for our, our response time together after our after our message. So I encourage you to take uh, take note of those. Of course, write them down. Be ready to answer those as we as we walk through the through the through the passage through the text. We're going to be in Luke chapter uh, nine again this morning. We are almost done. Uh, Lord willing, next week will be our our last sermon in Luke chapter 9. So Luke chapter 9, we're going to be in verse 46 this morning. Um, and before we uh, read our text, I want to do a quick recap of last week so we can get on the same page on what's about to happen um, this morning in the text. So Jesus comes down the mountain with Peter, James, and John. They come down the mountain of transfiguration where they experienced uh, um, the, the transfigured Christ where the, his essence and almost his whole nature was on display as God shining, his clothes are dazzling God the Father even shows up that day the glory of God descends upon them, they are in the midst of the greatest glory uh, ever to be experienced and they come down off that mountain and as soon as they come down off the mountain we see there in Luke chapter 9 verse 37, that Jesus and his boys are instantly in the mire of sinful humanity and in a fallen world. They encounter a a group of scribes and teachers who are arguing with his disciples, and his disciples are arguing back. You can look in Mark to see that. They're arguing back and forth. And then there's this father that comes up with his son and his son who is facing epilepsy and uh, demon, oppression, possession, whatever you want to call it. And those two things combined have been destroying this child before his father's eyes and before the, everyone else's. And so this man comes to Jesus and begs for, for mercy and for help and begs him to heal his heal his son. And of course Jesus does. Jesus heals um, the, the young man. And then afterwards he, he points his disciples once again to the truth of what the future is going to hold and that is the cross, that he's going to the cross. And so in that text, what we saw last week is there is something about the reality of being in the Christian life. Right? It's not always about being on top of the mountain. We seek glory, yes, also on the mountain to be with the Lord. So while we gather together, there's, there's something very good that's happening spiritually among God's people when we gather, almost like a mountaintop experience in itself. But also we seek uh, the glory of God in a fallen humanity by preaching the gospel and giving the message of the gospel to such a fallen world. And how do we do that? Well, how we do it is what Jesus corrects his disciples, and that is he exposed their unbelief. And what we need is faith, right? And so we talked a lot about, we talked about the reality of faith and the necessity of, of, of active faith. But what's also is really glorious about this passage that we talked about last week is not just the need for faith, but even despite our lack of faith, Jesus is not dependent upon us. That Jesus still is able to heal this young man and uh, restore him to his father despite the unfaithfulness of the disciples and their lack of faith, their lack of prayer, lack of faith that they, that they had. And the last point we talked about was the necessity of being grounded in truth. So when the crowds got all excited, they see Jesus doing this, they're, they're, they're totally impressed, they're praising God, the majesty of God, and, and they're just praising him. And Jesus pulls his voice back and basically in telling them, listen guys, I'm going to die on the cross I'm going to be delivered over to evil men. Do not be impressed by the crowds. They're fickle-hearted people. One day they will be cheering and praising. The next day they will be casting stones and begging for my crucifixion. And so we are confronted with the necessity of being grounded in the truth. And so that is what propels us this morning when we look at our next passage as Jesus um, confronts his disciples on some other places of unbelief. And there are two events in our passage this morning in verses 46 through 50 that, that, that take place. The first 
is where his disciples, so all 12 of them are there, and they are debating amongst themselves. And I use debate kind of loosely because sometimes debates can turn into arguments really quickly. And that's, that's the, ver, the, the word that is used in the text. They are arguing amongst themselves who is the greatest, which, which one of them was going to be the greatest, who is going to be Jesus' number two, who is going to be Jesus' assistant to the regional man, uh, manager, if you know what I'm talking about, who's going to be the second guy in charge. And so they're comparing themselves left and right, who's better, who's not. I got to go to the mountain, you didn't, so I'm better. But I stayed behind and argued with the fools, and, and I'm better kind of thing. This is what's taking place. And right after that, we see um, John, specifically, comes up to Jesus and tells Jesus that they saw a man who was exercising demons, casting out demons in Jesus' name, right? So he just wasn't doing it. He was casting them out in Jesus' name. And John proudly comes to Jesus and said, we, we tried to stop him because he's not with us. He's not one of us. He's not in our, our, our group. He wasn't following Jesus like us. And so what does Jesus say? Jesus tells them to not stop that guy, but to continue to let him exercise the demons. Now last week, hopefully you can see the flow, right? The connection between last and last week, there was unbelief, lack of understanding, there was fear of the disciples, right? We see these failures of the disciples being, being piled on, and then what we see, we'll see this week again is more, more of that same lacking, more of that same need for correction and, and teaching and admonition and exhortation and encouragement. The same need is for, uh, for them this week as it was last week. And so this week, it looks pretty bad for these guys. It looks pretty bad for these guys. And, and frankly, really, to the end of the gospel, it's going to continue to look bad for these guys. But there's something here in Luke, in this, in exposing of all these disciples and the way they acted. There's something that Luke is doing through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He is pointing us, as, he, as, as Jesus was pointing to the disciples, and what he's pointing to us is he's revealing something about ourselves that we can see in them. And if we don't see it, then we'll really never know what true greatness, what they were arguing about. We'll never really know true greatness, but we'll only fight and argue for our own benefits and for our own agendas. So looking back now, let's look at the text and let's read it together, starting in verse 46 in Luke chapter 9. An argument arose among them as to which of the disciples or which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, Whoever receives this child... In my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you, all is the great, is the one who is great. Verse 49. John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out a demon in your name, and we tried to stop him. Because he doesn't follow with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. Amen. That is the word of the Lord. May his Holy Spirit move in our hearts this morning to hear and see his holy, inspired, and inerrant word for his glory and for our joy. Everybody wants to be somebody. That's the famous line of a guy we all know and love. He's in this room today. Everybody wants to be somebody. Everybody wants to be loved. Everybody wants to be known. We all have these aspirations to be something significant in our, our, our life. 
next week we got a couple graduates that are going to hear speeches by professors and teachers and administrative people and, and maybe even some other person that they may bring in to speak. And they're going to be speeches of, now go out and be amazing. You know, and that's what it's going to be. Right? Be, be the best you ever can be. Be you. Don't deny yourself. Be, be you. When I was a kid, this, this kind of movement of that stuff really became huge. And, and one of the big lines as a kid that I remember holding on to was, uh, I, I guess it was maybe Nike, I don't know, but it was the saying, I want to be like Mike, right? Everybody know what Mike I'm talking about? I'm not talking about Mike Schmickleton. Nobody knows Michael Schmickleton. I'm talking about MJ, right? Everybody following me yet? MJ? Michael Jordan, the best basketball player of all time and will always be the best basketball player of all time. He was the best, and he still is the best. He's in like this upper echelon of, of athletes. He was a legend. And even to a, to a kid who really didn't like basketball, MJ was still fun to watch dunk, right? I mean, he was just amazing. I mean, except for when... Um, I remember the time when he was, it was toward the end of his career, and Shaquille O'Neal just started. He got drafted by the Orlando Magic, and since I live near Orlando, we got this really cool picture of Shaq uh, uh, blocking uh, MJ one time. It was pretty awesome. But MJ is still awesome, right? Michael Jordan was the best. He was a, a legend. He still is. But even before him, and even way before my time, there was another sports athlete who was a legend and still is who actually came out and said, I am the greatest. Now, some of y'all actually know who I'm talking about. You were alive back then, you remember. I didn't hear that speech, but I'll tell you what it is. In 1964, at 22 years old, there was a boxer and this boxer just won the, uh, the, the heavyweight championship. He defeated the reigning heavyweight champion. I think it was Sonny Liston. Sonny Liston, right? He beat him down. And at the, after, at the end of the race, the media surrounded this, this, this uh, new up-and-coming fighter who just won the, the heavyweight championship of the world, and they stuck a microphone in front of his face, and guess what he said? He said this. He said, I got the quote right here. He said, I am the greatest... I am the greatest thing that ever lived. I just turned 22 years old, and I just upset the heavyweight champion of the world. I must be the greatest. I've shown the world. I'm the king of the world. Listen to me. I am the greatest. I can't be beat. That's what he said. Now, you all know who said that. Muhammad Ali, right? Cassius Clay at the time, and then he switched his name uh, a little bit later. A legend in boxing and, and, and culture, good and, and, and bad. In fact, I went to his website this week and, and boldly, right on the front page, it says, The Legend. The Legend. Now, I wasn't alive back then, but that kind of bravado that he displayed on national media all over for everyone to see really upset a lot of people, didn't it? It really upset a lot of people. People, you're not, you're not supposed to speak that way. Now, if, if you know the, the, the character of Muhammad Ali, that was his deal. That, that's how he would, um, he would intimidate, intimidate his opponents. But look at the influence he had on sports. Look how far we've come. Now, you know, these years later, look where we are now in sports from then to now. Not every player now comes out and declares that they are the greatest and they're not at that level of bravado and athletics. And, 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 and I think one of the things is, is um, that kind of thing people don't say because it wouldn't really translate too well in the rest of culture. I mean, imagine as a teacher every day standing up saying, I'm the greatest, greatest teacher ever lived. Bow to me, my young minds of mush. Right? When we're, we're working the accounting, right? You just got through tax season, spike the calculator or whatever it is, right? Like the calculator. Look at me, I just won the tax season. The irony of what we see in sports today is 
Even when someone makes a good play or a good shot hit or they make a run, there's this posturing and celebration of, I'm the greatest. And someone who likes to watch football, I just find it hilarious when a team is losing and yet when that team makes a good play within the game, like the players are all like beating their chest, they're jumping up and down, they're doing their little, their little dance now as if they're, they won the Super Bowl or as if they're winning the game and they're not. I am the greatest. This kind of boasting and pride, though, is not just in sports and athletics. Athletics are not the problem here. I know our time in history is not completely unique in these, in these matters, but there seems to be, at least at our time, we can speak to our time, there's a level of narcissism, which means a love of self that is on complete, full display, and nobody is blushing about it anymore. Nobody is being offended by it anymore. From tightly brushed, uh, airbrushed selfies and digitally uh, filtered pictures that, that present our lives as being perfect and happy and confident. And this plays itself out daily, millions and millions of posts daily of ourselves on social media presenting ourselves as the greatest. Television is filled with its self-absorption, we have this inexhaustible appetite for affirmation and approval of others. We love ourselves more than anything else. And as if we needed more affirmation in our desire for self-absorption in 2006, I know that's a while ago for some people now, 2006, there was a book that came out called The Secret, written by a lady named Rhonda Burns. And in her, this, this book was a, a, a huge success. Somewhere around 20 million copies of this book was sold. In fact, it was so popular that it was eventually even made into a movie. It was made into a movie. And now here's the secret to her success. Now hold on to your hats because if you thought Muhammad Ali was being uh, braggadocious, wait till you hear what she says about you. What she says about you and what you should believe about yourself. So here's the secret. This is what she wrote. Spoiler if you were going to read the book. The earth turns on its orbit for you. The oceans ebb and flow for you. The birds sing for you. The sun rises and sets for you. The stars come out for you. Every beautiful thing you see, every wondrous thing you experience is all there for you. Take a look around. None of it can exist without you. No matter who you are, no matter who you thought you were, now you know the truth of who you really are. You are the master of the universe. I was one to be He-Man, but... You are the master of the universe. You are the heir to the kingdom. You are the perfection of life. There is a secret to your happiness and prosperity in this life. Now you know. You may never read this book. You may have never heard of it. I didn't hear about it really until this week as I began studying. I was confronted with this, with this idea. But it was certainly nothing new. I mean, I remember my parents telling me, you think the universe revolves around you, son? Right? Why? Because I've lived my life as if it did. And just 12 years later, after that book came out, look where our culture is. That you're the center of the universe. The earth revolves around you. The reason why this book is so successful, was so successful, and so many like it, so many are so successful, is because this book and others have tapped into something that is really deep into humanity. And then all it does is just affirm what you want to hear. It already affirms in what you want to hear, and that is you are the greatest. You are the center of the universe, and it is this desire for this kind of greatness that we all have in some way or not, however it plays out in, in our life, this is the kind of greatness that the Bible tells us is pride. And this pride is spiritually blinding. It blinds us to our selfishness and to our, our, and our, and our sinfulness. 
This pride is blinding. Here's where we have to be careful because it would be easy for us to think about all those other people out there, the 20 million that read the book and all the other people just believed it because they were taught it, that they're the problem, or the athletes, they're the problem. But when we come to this passage, what do we see? We see disciples who walked with Jesus every day. And yet what we saw last week and what we're seeing today is that they were ignorant and blind to their own struggle with their own pride of their own hearts. Their narcissism and their self-absorption. So when we read this passage, I, I hope at some level we can see ourselves. At some level. It may not be at the same level they are, but, but at some level we can, we can see ourselves because the problem with our pride is not something that is taught to us from a book. It's not given to us by culture. Culture and books and things like that just feed what is already there. It feeds our own pride and our spiritual blindness. This is not only the disciples, but this is also us at some levels. The pride of wanting to be greater than others will blind us from seeing who is truly great. It will hinder us from loving one another. And it will build walls to stop gospel association. Beloved, we need the Word of God to expose us and to correct us. We need our Savior to speak His words to us, His words of, of grace, and show us wherever it is this morning where we may be blind to a greater greatness. So my first point this morning, my first point this morning comes from the first three verses. So we're just going to split the two passages together, one point per each, is that we need greatness to see that greatness is humility. That greatness is humility. Now we saw this flowing throughout Luke. I mean, go back to the, to the Sermon on the Plain and you'll see nothing but meekness and humility and giving up of yourself for other people. This is not something that is new for us, but Jesus now tells us that this is greatness. Verse 46 opens up with now his disciples no longer arguing with scribes and Pharisees, but arguing amongst themselves. Who's going to be the greatest? And if you read the other Gospels, and you can see a hint of it in Luke as well, that they were trying to hide this from Jesus. They didn't want Jesus to see what they're arguing. Almost like, surprise, Jesus, we voted, and guess what? Thaddeus is now going to be the greatest. Now you, and then Jesus, you know. But they were hiding it from Jesus. They were trying to hide this argument uh, from him. And of course, we know what the text says, Jesus knowing the reasoning of their, of their hearts. So the irony, of though, of this argument that they're having with, with each other is it comes right on the heels of Jesus saying, I'm going to die. I'm going to die at the, in the hands of, of, of evil men. And this is the second time that he has told them of their death. But in a sense, this argument has kind of been bred out of what we were being warned about last week, and that is they couldn't get away from the praise of the crowds. That was bringing this up. Why else would you have a, a, a discussion among the greatest if your master is the one who's going to die? Why would you want to be great of that? They thought Jesus was going to come back and slay some Romans. I want to be in charge. I want to be a part of this. And so there's their argument. And you know what's crazy? Is this argument doesn't even stop here. You can turn forward and look. In Luke chapter 22, I think it's in verse 24, that argument happens right after the Lord's Supper. Again, at the table while the Lord is sat there, after they washed, he washed their feet. They are having that argument. I'm the greatest. Because here it comes, boys. We've got to get this settled now before it's too late. And Jesus, after that, actually tells about Peter denying him. Who is the greatest. So when we read this passage, it's not hard to ask ourselves, what's wrong with these guys? How, how, can, how can that even be an issue when Jesus is right in front of you? 
And yet, like I said before, we know it's not just the disciples. We know it's just not the, the disciples because the reality is, is that none of us are immune to this kind of pride. We, we may not stand up at the end of our services tonight or this, this morning, it'll be afternoon by then, and argue with each other, well, I'm greater because I paid attention longer. See, I timed it. Or I picked up more books in the back and I'm taking more home. I cleaned up more chairs. We're not having that argument, are we? We're not having that, that argument with each other, but yet what about in our hearts? Yeah, what about in our, in our hearts when we can compare ourselves to each other and we make judgments about each other? Who is better? Who is greater? Who is more popular? Who can sing better? Who serves the most? Who does the most? Who shows up every Sunday at 9.30 to help? Hint, hint, show up at 9.30 to help. It's all pride. And it all starts in, in, in our hearts. It's this kind of pride that, that comes from our hearts. And this pride, and even though it's in those things, and we're not talking about it out loud like, like these guys, it always starts small, and it seems so innocent, and it's easy to hide, and it's easy to keep unknown, but the reality is, is that it will come up eventually, and that's what makes it so dangerous. Not just for ourselves, but dangerous in the church. James chapter 4, verse 1 and 2 says, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? It's a question. Is it not this? That your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. And I think you saw my murder in our hearts. Right? That's where that pride starts. It starts in our, in our hearts and it leads to an eventual point where we murder someone in our hearts and eventually maybe even literally. You covet and you cannot ob- obtain. There's jealousy. So you fight and you quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. This pride starts in our hearts and eventually turns into fights and quarrels and jealousy and murder. This truth is not far from us because each of us are capable of this pride. Starts small, starts innocent. I want you to see here first that this pride that we all have a propensity toward. And when we give in to this pride, it will always hinder real gospel culture in our church. We can say amen to our covenant and to every point. But if we are walking in pride, if we are in our hearts walking in pride toward one another, it will always hinder that gospel culture of grace with one another. It will keep us from loving one another. It will keep us from caring for one another. Because the point is, we can't see those things. We can't do those things because we become too preoccupied with ourselves and only able to see ourselves. But notice in verse 47, Jesus learns about their argument, right, in only a way Jesus can do, <laughs> knowing the reasoning of their hearts. It's just not intuition when I can look at my kids fighting, you know, I can kind of, as a parent, figure it out. You know, Jesus knew exactly the reasons they were arguing. It comes from the hearts, doesn't it? In our hearts is the the, the root, the place where it starts, the root of all evil, because it's where we love things. It's where we start at loving ourselves. It's where we start at loving money and different idols. The root of all evil starts from our hearts. So Jesus takes the child now. He takes the child and he puts him right by his side. That's important. He puts the child right by his side and he says, whoever receives or welcomes, brings in... This child, in my name, receives me. And whoever receives me, receives him who sent me, God the Father. For he who is least among you is the one who is great. Now, here's the point. He's saying if the disciples, if we are willing to embrace and receive, welcome a child in his name, they will be received by Jesus. And when we're received by Jesus, we are also received by the Father who sent him. Now, some have taken this passage wrongly and made it to 
suggests that there's something inherently great about children. Right? Children are awesome. They're wonderful. Right? Sanctity of human life, we believe that. I'm not casting that off here. They want to make children their gods. But the child here was used by Jesus as an object lesson. This, the child was, a, was an object lesson for the disciples to see. For the disciples to see because they believed, as the, the rest of the culture, what they grew up in, that children were pretty low. Children were, were treated as nothing. And Roman children were actually treated even worse. Right? A, a child has no power. They're, they're weak. They have no money. They don't produce anything. They can't, well, they produce things, I can tell you that. They contribute to nothing almost. This is the perspective. And they can't even take care of themselves. That's the perspective that children have. We see that in our culture too, right? If you can't meet these minimum requirements, then you're no longer human. And Jesus takes this child who is lower than a servant, because a servant is worth something, a slave is worth something, and he puts him right next to him. Right next to Jesus. Right next to himself. And he loves, and he, what does he do? He receives this child. He receives this child. And in receiving this child, he's showing this object lesson to them. Guys, this is greatness. Greatness is taking these children who are worthless in society, who are the least of these, and it's receiving them. That is greatness. And in saying that what he is doing is greatness and receiving this child, he is also showing his greatness. So Jesus is telling them that their economy, their economy on how you determine what greatness is, is completely flawed. It's worldly. It's worldly with just kind of spiritual things sprinkled on there. Well, I go to church this many times. I, I, I went to the mountaintop with Jesus. I mean, those are all things that are just sprinkled with, with uh, worldly criteria, with spiritual elements. But in the kingdom, the one who is great is the one who imitates Jesus. He does what Jesus does, and that is loves and receives the least. Humility is what Jesus is saying. Humility. Greatness and position in the kingdom of God is not a Christian's priority. Obedience and love with humility and serving one another is. Brothers and sisters, ours is to imitate our Savior and love the least because the kingdom is not for those seeking our prominence. It's not for those who are seeking prominence in themselves. Compare what we talked about earlier. How, how opposing is this kind of humility and what we see on display daily? How, is it, how, how does it oppose also our own natures? Why is it so difficult? Why is it so hard? And I think the reason why it's so hard is because sometimes we are not content to pursue holiness and obedience by self-giving love for the lowly. We're more content to seek, to seek obedience and holiness through things that Jesus really doesn't care about. Most of us not only want to be great, but we also want to be perceived by great as others, by others. And Jesus corrects that. Let me, let me close this one point with a with an example. I, I know we don't have a children's ministry. And we don't have a children's ministry filled with, with many workers and doing different various things. But most of us have experience in churches where they do have children's ministries. And we have experience of with, within those churches. And, and this statistic is not far off because I've seen it with my, with my own eyes and the struggle is real that the hardest ministry in any church is finding children's workers. Children's ministry works the hardest. I mean, I think there's some people who are like, yeah, I feel like I had to do it every week. Yeah, it's the hardest part because week in, week out, it's so hard to find. And why is that? Why is it so hard to find children's workers? Because it's hard. It's loud. It's stinky at times with very little appreciation at times and maybe even very little self-fulfillment. 
To some, it just seems demeaning. So people don't sign up. People don't show up to do their, their work in the children's ministry. But do we, do we see what Jesus said? Do we hear what Jesus said and how it almost literally applies right there? Children's ministry or even just caring for other people's children just doesn't seem like the high path. It doesn't seem like the high path. It doesn't seem like this is the, 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 the mountaintop experience in, in the church. Now, if I can speak very specific here, I think men have failed in this area. I'm a dude. I'm putting my, implicating myself here. We have failed in this area, and we've passed it off to our wives and other women in the church and not leading in this area because we think there are more important areas in which we could serve better where our presence is needed most. But not according to Jesus. If we do not keep our pride in check, our fellowship will be bitter, will be shallow, but also our message will be lost. When we love ourselves too much and exalt Christ too little, we will offer the world more of ourselves rather than more of Jesus. Greatness in the kingdom is humility. That's hard. hard. But I'm going to help you at the end. Second point, greatness is association. Greatness is association. Now looking at the, the second event in verses 49 and 50, there becomes this, this, this training moment for Jesus, once again, teaching moment for, uh, for his disciples Verse 49, John comes up to Jesus uh, to tell them that they saw someone casting out demons in Jesus' name. So John comes up and says, Jesus, we tried to stop this guy because he's not one of us. Now, first of all, I love John. I love his heart. I love reading his words and how the Lord inspired him. I love his dedication and love for Jesus. I love his writings. But this doesn't really put John in a very good light. John sounds like almost like the young man that was standing next to Jesus. He sounds like a child here. Proudly tattletaling on someone else who ironically is able to do what the disciples were not able to do just a few verses earlier. Now, for all that we can see in this text, this mysterious guy, we don't know anything else about him, but what we can see is that this guy seemingly is doing everything right, right? He's doing everything right. He has the, the right motive. He's doing it with the right agenda. He's doing it in Jesus' name. But the disciples didn't struggle with that. They didn't struggle with that. They let's try to stop this guy because he was not one of them. He's not one of us. He can't do that. He can't do those things. He was not in their clique, their group, their little tribe. And if they're not one of us, let's shut them down. Now, what does that sound like? Simply what we see here is although they thought they were doing good, right, you can imagine John coming up and proudly, Jesus, Jesus, look what I did. They thought they were doing good, but what they were really doing was they were elevating themselves over the mission. Pride. Again, here's, here's pride once again. Jesus tells them, don't, don't stop him, for, for the one who is not against you is for you. Now, throughout history, this passage as well has been twisted and abused and has brought about some ridiculous rationale that argued that the church shouldn't care about theological differences and with different groups. We're all the same. We're all one. And who cares if one group doesn't believe the gospel or substitutionary atonement or the trinity or the deity? We all can work together. We're all the same. And the reality is, is no, we're not. And that's not at all what Jesus is saying here because we know this guy seemingly was doing everything right. What Jesus was going after was their party spirit that they have. This tribalism that they were coming up as they were the elites. That they were always the greatest. Now, 
pastors, including me, by, by our nature, we get suspicious and we get insecure and we can be jealous over other pastors and other churches that seem to be more successful than, our, than, than ours. And, and all that is pride getting the best of us. Now that, that's for me. What, what about for y'all? What about for the church? You know, since the beginning of our, of our church, we, we committed together, literally, that as we plant this church, we must take it seriously. It must be biblical and it must be serious. And I, I think we've taken the necessary steps over the years to, to do that and to protect that. So we've taken learning the Bible and its doctrine very seriously. Very seriously. We have taken our, our ecclesiology, how we do church and how we shaped our church, very seriously. We've taken our, our covenant very seriously. We'll read it again this morning. We take it seriously. And we're going to continue to do those things. But we need to be careful that even though we take these things seriously, that it does not lead us to have a tribal or party spirit in regards to others that are around us who are faithful who are gospel-believing, who are Christ-exalting, who are Bible-preaching Christians, who, who may differ from us on certain points of doctrine and ecclesiology that are still very important and precious to us. We may be different from them on some of those theological points, yet we ought to be able to praise God when we see the kingdom of God being advanced in their churches. If they are not against us, then they are for us. Can we say the opposite just as true? That if we are not against them, then can we be for them? Sovereign grace is not the only representation of the kingdom of God in Statesboro. We're a part of it. And don't we live in a world that seriously now more than ever, I mean, more, I mean I'm, I'm young, but more than ever, prides itself on what tribe they exist in, what we identify ourselves being a part of. And if you're not a part of my particular tribe, then what we do, what we've been taught now is we vilify other people and we get outraged at other people. We've created tribes now uh, continually in, in, our, in our humanity, in our flesh. This is how we exist. We create these distinctive groups and then we, put, we pit them against one another. We're seeing it now in black versus white, male versus female, young versus old, city versus country, rich, middle class versus poor, Republican versus Democrat. It's so easy for us to get caught up and to place ourselves in those groups or a combination of those groups. You can probably identify with a couple of them. You get in this little group, and we, we even create a little Facebook group. We get involved, and then everybody else is wrong. Everybody else needs to be shut down and not heard. And what we're seeing in our country today is so sad is the dehumanizing of people in other groups. It's sickening. But in the church, man, we do the same thing. Reformed versus Arminianism. Arminianism. Arminian. Yeah. I can't even say the name right. We, put our, we pit ourselves against one another as if they're not faithful. And we can do the same thing with other people, with other churches, if they don't fit into our groups and we question, are they really doing God's work? Are they really being faithful? This should not be the church. And certainly not Sovereign Grace. With her name, Sovereign Grace. Yes, I'm, I am absolutely saying there are good distinctions that we have made and will continue to make and will continue to be discerning about uh, according to the scriptures and lines that we must draw and we will defend them even to going to jail and death itself. And even though there are people in other groups who may not want to be members and we may not want to be members of their church. That's why, you're, why you are here. And even if they couldn't be a member of our church, can't we still pray for them and support them and their pastors 
that they would preach the gospel faithfully and support them in the kingdom work here in Statesboro? That we're all on the same side? We could also pray for other churches, the, the, and I say that loosely now, the churches that don't preach the gospel, that don't believe the gospel. We can preach for them, that, they, that the Spirit of God would lead them to repentance and believe the gospel and believe the scriptures. That is how we can be for them and not against them. And that is what will crush the pride of tribal elitism. I told you a while ago that there's an answer to this. There's a way that we, we kill our pride, and that is to see the greatness of the gospel. More specifically, the greatness of the one of the gospel. It's difficult to see who we really are. It's difficult to see who we really are, but when we see who we really are, it must be put to death under the work of the gospel. It's hard. We don't really want to see the reality of our flesh because it kind of looks like the disciples here. We don't want to see that. But Jesus already knows. Jesus knows our hearts. He knows the reasonings of, of our hearts. And yet, Jesus knows. He knows our parts. He knows the way we compare with one another. He knows that we want to be better, that we want to be greater, to, and not to love the least of these he knows our temptation to be tribal in our spirit and to be elitist in our, in our small groups. He knows these things. And yet the gospel is still true. It's still true. And we can kill this, this deadly sin by delighting in something that is greater, the one who is greater. Just real quick, I mean, remember from Luke 30, uh, 9, 37 and on, we've seen nothing but fumbling and bumbling from these disciples. Fear, lack of understanding, faithlessness, unbelief, pride, over and over, tribalism, elitism. They totally, next week we're going to see how they totally missed the point of why Jesus even came. And you know, they've already been with Jesus for over a year. And they still don't, they still don't get it. Failing, failing, fumbling, bumbling. But what Jesus told us last week, by reminding his disciples of why he came, he is telling us as well, he is telling us why he came, and that is he came because we need him. We needed him. When he sees these guys making these mistakes over and over, I can almost see it in Jesus' mind. You are the reason why I am here. In your pride, in your fumbling and bumbling, in your tribalism, you are the reason why I am here. You are the reason why I am going to the cross and why I'm going to be handed over to evil men. You are the reason why I'm going to die. And the reason is, is because that is the only way. It is the only way. You cannot save yourself and nor can anyone else. Nothing can free you from this blindness. And this is why I am here. And this is why I must go to Jerusalem. It is in the midst of these guys' failures and faithlessness that we see Jesus committing himself going to the cross for their salvation and ours. Now, doesn't that show us the greatness of our Savior? You know, if you had a choice, all of us would agree that we would want a, just a little bit of a heads up if we knew the President of the United States was going to stop by our home. We'd clean up, we'd mow the lawn, we'd pull the weeds, we'd go to the grocery store, make sure we had whatever that guy eats, I don't know, something that would, the President would enjoy. We'd maybe wash the cars, tell our kids to go play outside until the President leaves kind of thing, whatever it is. We would want a heads up if the President was coming over. Why? we want to clean up. Did you know Jesus doesn't ask us to clean ourselves up? Jesus hasn't given us a heads up. Jesus knows us in our worsts of worsts. Jesus knows those thoughts that we've never shared with anybody. Jesus knows those intentions of our hearts that we've never shared with anybody, things that are simply regrettable. And yet our Savior says, this is why I came. That pride that just seems so ugly, that's why I came. That's why I went to the cross. That's why I was rejected and suffered and died 
It is for your sin. That's greatness. So all along with this, they're trying to find themselves to be great. Trying to find themselves in, in, in doing good. And what does Jesus point them to? What real greatness is. Himself. It's the glorious, bright light of his greatness. And in such good news, brothers and sisters, that we can crush this pride. And crush this pride of our own greatness by putting it up to his. If he is great, if he is the greatest, and if, and if he humbled himself to bear on himself God's wrath and the death that we deserve, how will that crush your pride? How will that change how you treat others? How will it change on how we relate to others? How can it be that we who know the sacrificial love of Christ so often have the grease stains of pride all over our lives? Let's not be consumed with our pride for our own glory, but have a passion for the glory of the greatest, Jesus Christ. I think this puts in perspective what Jesus taught us earlier weeks ago. That to be a disciple is to be one who denies themselves and takes up his cross daily and follow him. To deny ourselves, to deny our pride, to walk humbly before our God. This battle against our pride is one that we must fight every day by looking to Jesus, looking for, looking for him, looking toward him and believing and trusting in him. I want to close with this. One of my favorite hymn writers has to be Isaac Watts, and I think in his most famous of all hymns, he penned the verse, and it goes like this. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and poor contempt all my pride. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, give us a vision of the wondrous cross, the glorious cross we are reading and studying about throughout Luke. The cross on which our Savior, the Prince of Glory, died. And we may take the things that we think are so great in our life, the things that we boast in, and help us to count them loss. Jesus is the greatest. He is the greatest. Be with us, Father, as we respond now together as your people for your glory and for our joy. In Jesus' name, amen.